0: I understand, I could have had class, I could have been a contender, I
1: could have been somebody. 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 So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever.
2: The newly appointed British Prime Minister has already sacked most of his cabinet, replaced them with right-wing Brexiteers and declared a new golden age for the country, even as he makes it more likely than ever, they're about to crash out of the EU without a deal. I think we can all agree, these are turbulent times we're all living in before our guest today. Well, Turbulence is his middle name. Welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Really? Yeah, officially, yeah, yeah. I think Cody
1: is his middle name. (laughs) John Cody Simpson. The
2: guest in question is someone you'll be familiar with if you follow pretty much any of the major world events in the last 50 years. This is a man who was on the plane that took the Ayatollah Khomeini from Paris to Tehran at the onset of the Iranian revolution in 1979. He reported from Tiananmen Square and the fall of the Ceausescu regime was one of the first reporters to enter Afghanistan in 2001 wearing a burqa as a disguise. He's been threatened by paramilitary forces in the north bombed by American forces in Iraq. He's the type of foreign correspondent that other foreign correspondents look at and say not sure I fancy that. That's just a bit too dangerous. And after more than five decades, he's still working with the BBC. We're thrilled to have John Simpson on the show today. Of all people, maybe John Simpson can make some sense of what's going on in the world. Is that too big an ask for an interview on a Saturday morning? Quite frankly, no, is, yeah. no, no, Ken, what have you made of week one of the new golden age? Feeling golden?
1: I think it's been pretty interesting, actually. I, mean, I, I hope that they install cameras. Um, I think the most interesting appointment that Boris Johnson has made is Dominic Cummings. Oh, yeah. Uh, as his chief advisor, and he was the guy, if you saw the Channel 4 uh, Brexit sort of dramatization, which was around January, Benedict Cumberbatch played uh, Cummings in this. I mean, it was obviously a dramatization, they took took a little bit of license. Um, He is also a prolific blogger, although I assume this will pause for the time being, and one of his big obsessions is the utter rank incompetence of the British Civil Service. So he describes them as systematically dysfunctional, uh, grotesquely overpaid, literally hardwired to fail. Um, He had worked before with Michael Gove in the Department for Education in the UK, and apparently a civil servant told their team, you're a mutant virus, I'm the immune system, and it's my job to expel (laughs) you from the organism. So now the virus is back (laughs) and is running the show. (laughs) Um, There's 20,000 words on that, among many other long pieces on his blog. Now, this is obviously somebody who speaks this way or is prepared to express very scathing views, um, is is not universally popular with colleagues. So David Cameron once referred to him as a career psychopath, but he's actually much more withering about Cameron. I mean, he says, his, his quote here on Cameron is, I don't hate Cameron. I do not respect him, which is different. Ouch! Uh, you know, his, I thought he was in politics for bad reasons. Essentially, he was someone who wanted to be, not someone who wanted to do, which is to say, one of these people who infest politics whose ambition is to sort of clamber up the greasy pole, uh, be somebody important, get an important position and have, you know, acolytes around you who are all sort of looking up to you and calling you the boss, rather than actually to do something important or make some valuable change in the world, which is what makes it so kind of interesting that he's now working for Boris Johnson, Uh. who would have seemed like the absolute archetype of of that type of thing more so than Cameron i'm not quite sure what he's ever actually stood for apart from self advancement but maybe we're about to See a new side, Tim.
2: Got a message in here from Catherine Bowdams. Just listen to Katrina Crow, absolutely filleting, cutting, drawing, and quartering Ken on last week's second captains. <laughs> Looking forward to your comeback this week, Ken. We'll see if you have enough stuff for John Simpson. All right, Murph. John is clearly a resourceful and fearless human being. The exact qualities required to become this year's greatest non-sports person. Sports person. What is the latest state of play?
1: I could have been a contender. I could have been, been somebody. somebody.
3: Well, last week's guest, Katrina Cross, scored 75 points in what was a respectable showing, but top of our leaderboard is still Senator George Mitchell on 81 points. And I think it's fair to say that if he pulls this one off, this will signify his greatest ever triumph. Oh but uh, John Simpson has stared down a few big politicians in his day, and this morning on, he has
2: George Mitchell <laughs> in his side. <sights. laughs> That's the task in front of John today. Is he up to the challenge? Text us 51551, tweet at second captains. John Simpson is raring to go on second captains Saturday. First up, we're going to get a bit of Saint-Sister. Beautiful tune, isn't it? That's Morgan McIntyre and Gemma Doherty and their band Saint Sister. Unbelievably talented young Irish act. The song is called Causing Trouble from the album Shape of Silence, which was nominated for a Choice Music Prize this year. Now, our guest this morning on Second Captain Saturday is a giant of the broadcasting world. With the BBC for more than 50 years, he's been described as the greatest foreign correspondent of his generation, reporting from war zones all over the globe. He's even served his time here in
0: Ireland. John Simpson, we're delighted to have you on the show. That's a great honour. Thank you. I'm not sure I recognise all those lovely descriptions.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, um, now we'll get into your sporting background in more detail later on, but on some of those trips that I describe, on, on your travels, your, your work trips, if it's even correct to call them that, did sport come in handy on one of your uh, more dangerous assignments in Kinshasa?
0: <laughs> oh, that's a long time ago. But yes, yeah. Um, Well, I I was kind of, it seems rather mad now, doesn't it, to say it. But I I presented myself as a, a, well, I suppose, a mercenary during the Angolan Civil War. And uh, the base for all of the action there was, in fact, across the border in what was then called Zaire and is now called the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, there was a, a hotel on the edge of the center part of uh, Kinshasa, the capital, where I went, but also so did dozens, perhaps more than dozens, of real mercenaries. And I was kind of watching them and reporting on them, uh, which was a little bit dodgy because they were all listening to the radio, so they knew I was around. (laughs) Um, and uh, there was a, a moment when one of them discovered who I was and said he was going to come and kill me in my room later. And I I sat there in the room and, um, well, actually, I couldn't even think better to do. So I listened to a rugby match, an international rugby match. It was a Saturday afternoon. And the BBC World Service was uh, commentating on it. And I sat there and listened. And after a bit, I forgot to be afraid of the guy that was supposed to be coming uh, (laughs) around. And um, I just got into the match. In fact, uh, another mercenary, somebody who I think was actually working for the French uh, Secret Service, but he he knew about me as well. And he came to my room and uh, brought a gun with him and said, uh, as long as he was there, I'd be okay. So he liked the rugby too. He'd he'd been educated in England. So he listened to the rugby with great enjoyment. And we forgot all about the, the really bad things that were going on around us.
2: We'll find out more about your own sporting prowess later, John. But can I ask you what you've made of the first few days of the Boris Johnson reign as Prime Minister?
0: Well, it's, everything's up in the air, isn't it? I mean, it's like um, the new boss comes in and uh, opens all the drawers and throws all the papers up in the air. And uh, I don't know. I, I really don't know what's going to happen. I suppose we can expect that there'll be a uh, an election very, very soon. I mean, by, certainly I th- would have thought by, by the end of October or the beginning of November. And um, I think that's what all of this is about, he's kind of Boris Johnson, uh, whom I know fairly well, um, is uh, trying to create a kind of atmosphere which will help him win a snap election. So it's not kind of normal times, it seems very weird indeed. You say you you know him
2: fairly well, yeah John, what have your dealings been like with the new leader of the country?
0: well i i remember him uh in the 1980s as a uh, he was a correspondent in brussels for the daily telegraph and um i i remember um you know seeing quite a bit of him then when i used to go to brussels from london now i don't think i would have ever thought in my anybody's wildest dreams he might one day be prime minister of uh, of my country but um uh, anyway, yeah, and I knew him when he was when he was Mayor of uh, of London too, and I interviewed him various times. I mean, thing is, if you had Boris round to dinner, um, the, but you could bet that the dinner party would uh, would really go with a bang. Um, that's not necessarily the best criterion for a politician, but we'll see.
2: Who was the first Prime Minister you covered for the BBC, John?
0: Um, I suppose it was Harold Wilson in the 19, late 1960s and the early 70s. Um, I tried to ask him a question once at, uh, at Euston Station in London. It was my first day out as a reporter about whether he was going to call an election because the papers were full of the suggestion that he was. And, uh he went absolutely berserk, and he punched me in the stomach. And he said, uh, "Try to wrestle the microphone out of my hand." And he said he'd put in the strongest complaint to the uh, to the BBC director general directly. He got to Liverpool where he was travelling by train, um, and that was that. And then he, God, I thought I'd you know, blown ever. Couldn't see really quite what I'd done so bad uh, to ask him a question which, you know, anybody might want to know about. But um, anyway, uh, he didn't complain to the director general. And uh, I remember looking at my watch, it was 10 to 11, and I thought, I've been physically assaulted by the prime minister and <laughs> and i've lost my job and it isn't even lunchtime
1: <laughs> i'm just wondering what the reaction was of of your colleagues who who obviously would have witnessed this moment did they explain to you afterwards why you
0: deserve to be
1: punched in the summer
0: <laughs> well in you know it was a different world in those days and um you didn't really ask Uh, top politicians questions on the hoof like that or if you did you you know you you they were kind of liable to get upset as harold wilson did um and yeah i mean one of the bbc cameramen who was there an old chap um said to me you can't expect to doorstep the prime minister sonny Funnily enough, that was Margaret Thatcher about uh, 10 years later, a little bit under 10 years later, who changed all that. I mean, she loved being doorstepped and uh, she, uh, she used to thrive on it. And the harder, the nastier, the more difficult the questions, the more she liked it. So everything changed after that. And... You know, in those days, no, you um, you were supposed to know your place if you were if you were a journalist. It is an interesting
1: evolution, I think, in in terms of <laughs> Harold Wilson could do that. Then I imagine if if Boris Johnson was to do that next week, it would blow up into quite a serious issue. Uh, whereas well, I
0: think he'd probably resign. Uh, have to resign uh, if he attacked a a journalist physically. I mean, uh, what I ought to explain is that. In those days, perhaps it's happening again. Um, a British general election, even the sort of suggestion of a British general election was was world news. And so on that day, on Platform 7 at Euston Station, I could take you <laughs> to the exact place uh, where it happened. Um, on that day, all the American television networks were there, um, all of the Western European uh, news organizations and uh, um, uh, you know radio and television and and newspapers all there the platform was absolutely packed with people in fact I had to stand in front of everybody which probably irritated uh, the other hacks because I came a bit late characteristically but um, Every leading news organisation in the Western world got a shot of Harold Wilson punching me uh, in the stomach. But um, I, no matter where I tried afterwards, I couldn't find anybody that had used that. You know, that's what—that's what you got for asking a cheeky question. It wasn't—it uh, wasn't a news item. It was a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, just a, a sense that I didn't know my place.
1: Well, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but it, it seems to me as though. OK, that, that might have been OK at that time. But if Harold Wilson, for instance, had been caught out lying to the public or lying in some sort of capacity to do his job, that would have been a serious problem for him at that time. And it seems now as though that's not really a serious problem for political leaders anymore. Why, why do you think that might be the case?
0: Well, I don't know. I think we're entering a new kind of phase, really, where, whereby, you know, if you're if you've got... Huge popular support. You can say anything and do anything, and nobody can really touch you. I mean, I we passed the moment the other day where President Trump had supposedly told three thousand lies uh, since he came into office, um, but you know he still continues. And I, I, uh, I mean, you've got to remember, I've been a political journalist really for fifty years, and I, I can't say, I'm hugely shocked by uh, the, the thought that politicians tell lies. I mean, whatever else, you know. But um, is, isn't the isn't difference, I, 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 though,
1: in the consequence? You know, in the sense that politicians used to go to great pains to avoid the appearance of lying or to sort of uh, silence uh, possible evidence that might suggest this or, or cover things up. And it turns out you don't need to do that anymore.
0: Well, like President Reagan, you mean, in the 80s. President Reagan said on a fairly regular basis, things that had absolutely no no fact in them. But he carried on. I mean, this is not a new thing, you know. This has happened before.
2: We are obviously pretty tied up in this whole Brexit situation, John, at the moment. Do you think that there is uh, any sort of growing feeling in the UK that actually we are part of the problem and do you think that that Boris Johnson might whip that up over the next couple of months
0: no i don't think i well i think it would be really a big mistake to to kind of uh, suggest that ireland is in any case, in any way responsible or to make britain's position difficult no i mean i think i dare say there will be quite a lot of uh, of nastiness whipped up but it'll be against against France in particular and against the you know the EU kind of bureaucracy and so on. I don't think Ireland will uh, I mean it would be grotesque really since Ireland is likely to be the biggest victim of any collapse in the in in the sort of British position I I don't think that would be would be reasonable I think Ireland's too popular in Britain for that to resonate but I do think I mean I you know you can see how President Macron in, in France uh, has has played on this quite a lot, and uh, you know it's obviously in, he regards it in his interest to sort of bang the the anti-British drum. And I think we'll find that uh, that the Johnson government will bang uh, an anti-French, an anti-EU drum, but it won't. I'm I, I can't believe that uh, that anybody would would criticise or attack Ireland because Ireland's the main victim.
1: You've reported from countries in turmoil, uh, revolutionary ferment, countries tottering on the brink of collapse. Has Britain started to remind you of one of those places?
0: No. No? No, of course not. not, No, I mean, that's just, uh, I'm afraid that that's uh, that's the kind of thing you, you you know, people um, say, but not, uh, no, I mean, certainly not. uh. (laughs) Tell us
2: the... When you first started out, there was a certain relationship, I think, between the media, which is a very broad term anyway, but there was a sense that there was trust in the media by and large, which appears to have been eroded. I don't know, it seems a lot more even in the last five years than, than the erosion that might have taken place in the 25 years before that. Do you agree with that, first of all?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean there's always been if you if you worked for the BBC there was always a kind of undercurrent of of hostility to the BBC uh in Britain uh and probably that's true in most countries that they see their sort of uh, their national broadcaster as a you know mouthpiece of government and and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I think uh, I'm afraid that people there's a sort of, um, I think, a, a kind of phony uh, cynicism, a sort of false cynicism, which affects everybody, so that you you know you just do the sort of Trump thing of saying uh, anything you don't like that's that's reported is fake news, and that of course has has spread, as we know, right across. To Europe from the U.S. and it's it's been very very influential. I think I think the BBC. I don't think the BBC's ever had such a, a hard time of it as it's as it's having now. And you know, on top of that, uh, there was a really scary uh, report out the other day about how few uh, people under the age of 25 actually even watch any kind of news program or read any kind of newspaper. And that that's spreading. I mean, that isn't just a British uh, a British issue. I think it's it's uh, that's that's everywhere I go, really. And you know, it's quite worrying. But I mean, I'm seventy four. It should last me out.
1: Just. <laughs> well, when when you say it's it's scary or, or worrying, what why do you think that is? I mean, what in what what do you think that these young people are missing out on?
0: Well, I think they're missing out on you know what's going to come around the corner and hit them in international affairs. I mean, I remember very clearly how what a, an enormous upsurge of anger there was in the United States in 2001. 9-11 happened. And um, we read that the media should have told uh, Americans of the, the danger and the threat that was coming to them. But it's all faded away. And, I mean, I think, you know, the sad thing is that... that Things are going on at the moment which are far, far more dangerous and difficult than, than, for instance, the issue of Brexit. Um, you know, it may, it, it seems to have uh, kind of passed people by that there's something really serious uh, beginning to happen with the with the weather. Yeah. Um, and and the you know the Prince of Wales said about a, a week ago or something that he reckoned that, that the world had about eighteen months to get its act together and work out what to do. Now I don't know what he based that on, but you know that uh, uh, there would have been a time when that everybody would have would have been uh, uh, appalled and when a call for for uh, action like that would have had a, a big effect. Uh, in fact, it was it was tucked away, you know, it was a sort of page five, uh, somewhere or another. I suppose it was reported in Ireland. Um, you know, uh, it, that is far far more important than what Boris Johnson is, is is going to do. This is our this is our life. I mean, it's uh, it's it really is serious, and I've, I mean I've tried to. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm really kind of wa- quite worried about about all this, and I try and put in in my, in my reporting, particularly uh, uh, on the Today programme on on Radio Four. I do a sort of weekly thing for them, and um, you know, I try to remind people of, of what's happening, but you just get the newspapers seemingly saying you know it, it's a, it's another really hot day today and what's happened on the railways but you don't get people starting to say well it doesn't seem that you get big crowds saying uh you know our world is 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 starting to melt in front of our eyes
1: this is a this is another thing that that i saw a lot of during the week john uh, just what you're saying there in terms of um this story. I mean, there was record high temperatures in France, Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, Scotland, a record high in July for England. Clearly this is extraordinary stuff. Uh but that that a lot of the reporting kind of was showing people jumping into swimming pools and at the beach and all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff as though it was a holiday as opposed to uh, you know, a kind of uh, slow moving apocalypse.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you just there's a sort of real disconnect between what we're seeing in front of our eyes and what we can guess to be the future it's not only that i'm i mean i'm just off to uh, for a, a holiday to south africa where my wife comes from and she told me this morning that um in in the northern cape in south africa the temperature last night i mean this is subtropical uh, notionally it's winter there the temperature last night was minus 21 Degrees centigrade. Now, I don't think that's ever been recorded uh, in in tropical or subtropical Africa. Um, certainly not in the southern half of it. Um, and and yet, you know, it, it's just a, it's just another item. And because it's a long way away from from Europe, nobody takes any notice of it. I think these. I mean, maybe you know, if there are uh, if there are uh, things that the the media ought to be uh, lashing themselves about, I think that's a a really major issue that we're not taking it seriously, not taking it nearly seriously enough.
2: Yeah, and I guess part of the issue is that viewers or readers or whatever it might be don't have that trust anymore, and whatever it is, whether it's climate, whether it's Brexit, they believe that. They're listening to people who are biased one way or the other and are pushing this biased point of view, which is something that you've been, I think, quite scrupulous in trying to avoid, John. I mean, even uh, I was reading up a Sunday Telegraph column you wrote back in 2003. This was after the oh. horrific tragedy when your translator was killed in Iraq, uh, Abdul Abderazak. And you had written, you would met his mother and you said, was the overthrow of Saddam Hussein worth all the violence and chaos? Was it worth the death of my 25 year old translator, the only support of his widowed mother? She doesn't think so. At the moment, I'm finding it hard not to agree with her, which, se- which seems absolutely fine. I mean, that's a beautifully put point. But you later said you actually expressed regret for that final line.
0: I, I'm not supposed to express opinions about these things. That's not what I'm paid to do. Um, I suppose the kind of uh, test that my colleagues in the BBC always uh, present on it is would you say that in a in a broadcast for the BBC well no I wouldn't I really really wouldn't i I you know I don't think it's my job to tell people whether the invasion of Iraq was a good thing or a bad thing I feel now um, this is what sixteen years later um i think it's perfectly reasonable to say that that the invasion of iraq was a a really bad thing which didn't do anybody any any favors and i i would certainly say that on a bbc program now but i think while it's a, a matter of public debate as it was then i don't think it's my job to say that and i feel i did step over the line i you've got to have somebody that uh, that that is say that is m- m- i think more or less trustworthy um the bbc is coming under huge attack still uh, maybe it's fading away because the circumstances are changing but uh, over its you know on the one hand on the other reporting of the the european referendum um because we allowed all sorts of people to say all sorts of things that we could have, might have guessed weren't true. Afterwards, we established a, set, a, a whole department which checks these things out. And every day on the BBC website, uh, you know, they they test out the statements of politicians and and uh, uh, big organisations and, and so on, and say, is this correct? And to the best of their information, they uh they look into it and 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 make a judgment i just really really wish uh that that had been in place in the referendum when there were so many so many lies and uh so many um untruths told not only on one side. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the sort of notion about Project Fear, where the British economy was going to collapse uh, the day after a, a Brexit, pro-Brexit vote, that had a, a serious effect on the debate and turned out not to be true. So it isn't only one side that was uh, that was telling lies. But I think it's important to present these things without saying, and therefore, because because politician X is telling a lie, therefore everything he, he or she says and advocates must be wrong.
1: I do think it raises a, an interesting question about what the truth actually is, you know, in the sense that when this terrible thing happened in Iraq, this this cruel and pointless death of your translator – that is the reality of a war that's that's what it is so so in a sense as a, as a uh, as a correspondent reporting on it why, why shouldn't you talk about it
0: well i mean i think it's perfectly reasonable to talk about it and and uh, you know the fact is that uh, uh, it was a, a mistake by an american pilot uh, who dropped a 1000 pound bomb on us and um, was far from being kind of reprimanded or anything, was flying again the next day, dropping more bombs. Um, so, I, you know, yeah, all of that is to vote. I mean, what what I think was unacceptable, really, was to kind of join up these things, the, the death of my translator uh, and the cause for which he died. As I say, I think now, with the hindsight of of uh, nearly 20 years, it, it is possible to say it wasn't worth it. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. None of the, the whole invasion was uh, done on false pretenses and shouldn't have happened. But uh, at the time, and that was in 2003, I don't think that was my call to make. I don't think it was the right thing for somebody on the ground to say, and i, I you know I think it was uh, the circumstances of having to go and see the my translator's mother tell her i had a had his blood on me uh, on my clothes when I went to see her and um uh, and I had to tell her what was going on, and I wrote that article immediately afterwards i mean in the, in the kind of two hours afterwards and um but I, 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 I wish I'd, I wish I'd stuck to the kind of rule book more, and I wish I hadn't uh, started to get involved with the politics of the thing. And um, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, I, I probably I'll make the same mistake again. I seem to make every mistake uh, again and again and again. But I, it's not what I want to do. The BBC actually was, I thought, rather good in not saying anything about it. I think they thought you know this man's been through it a bit um, cut him a bit of slack this time. Alright John we'll give you
2: a break for a minute or so here just to get your thoughts together for the next bit of the show because we're going to switch the focus to your sporting achievements. That's up next, you're listening to the great John Simpson on Second Captain Saturday R-D, Radio
1: One.
2: <sighs> Second Captain, First Captain whatever Owen, Ken and Murph with you right through the summer on Second Captain Saturday. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet at Second Captains or text 51551. We're so happy to be in the company of the brilliant John Simpson this morning, a man who has been with the BBC for more than 50 years. And John, the Irish connection is strong. Your first foreign posting was here in the early 70s and you even have an Irish passport. So I'm sure you enjoyed watching the exploits of the Irish cricket team who put it up to England at the home of cricket this
0: week. Oh, I had a lovely time watching it. I mean, I've got it. You see, I'm I'm, a, I'm a, um, a Brit. I'm born in England of English parents, English grandparents, indeed, even though my paternal grandmother was born in Ireland. But the reason I felt obliged to say it when I even when I applied for an Irish passport uh, on that, the reason that she was there was uh, she was the daughter of a English Army officers, job it was to make sure that Ireland never issued independent passports. So <laughs> the guy I explain, I explain to him and he uh, smiled and he said I think you should just carry on filling the forms out. Yeah. And <laughs> of advice. course I got yeah. a, I got a passport because uh, you know that's uh, that's the law and I'm very very proud of my Irish passport. Um I may not have a a drop of Irish blood in me although I do of course like everybody else in, in the UK but I feel I'm a, I'm Irish by by will i mean i've decided i wanted to be irish and i balance these things these things out but i'm afraid when it comes to sport i kind of usually uh, edge towards the england side but in the cricket where you've got you've got a a country which uh, where although cricket's been played in ireland of course for nearly 200 years uh, it's not been Traditionally accepted as a as a kind of an Irish spot on the day when Ireland or the 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 match when Ireland is playing a, a a test match against England, the very first one. Of course, I I longed for Ireland to win, and every English wicket that fell, I was rubbing my hands. And um, I'm just sorry that the. The fairy tale didn't have a, an entirely happy ending for Ireland. But I just, I don't think anybody's going to forget the quality of the Irish bowling. And um, my kid and I, uh, my kid is much, is even more Irish than I am, mm-hmm. actually. Um, we were cheering every time that, the, that an Irish bowler did well.
3: Did you play any cricket while you were living in Ireland?
0: I did I played a terrible game uh, a, a game that I still sometimes think of with with embarrassment and horror I I I was walking down um um Kildare Street and I bumped into a friend of mine who was very much a kind of cricketing f- figure and he said to me uh, I bet you're a cricketer, aren't I? Aren't you? And I said, "Well, no, you know, I like cricket. Uh, I'm no good at it." Oh, he said, "You English, you always, you know, you're always trying to pretend to be modest, and you're always." And I said, oh, no, no. You know, in my case, I'm I'm a pretty crap player." Ah, he said, "Look, we're looking for a team. Uh, just a, it's just a knockabout," he said. And uh, come on Saturday, and I thought, well, it might be quite fun. We went to some vast great country house in County Westmeath. And um, as we were walking out, I said to the chap beside me, who are we playing for? And he said, oh, we're, we're playing for County Meath against the rest of Ireland. oh And I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, now's the time to run for it. But, to, or to have, you know, take a call that says I, I've, I've got to go. But I, I didn't anyway. And it was just awful it was humiliating I ran our uh, we uh, only one of our batsmen uh, really scored any kind of runs and I managed to get him run out and (laughs) when the chief scorer on the other side knocked the ball in my direction a really easy catch I dropped it and you know I mean Irish especially Irish sportsmen are really really nice I've found over the years but in the in the changing room afterwards, nobody spoke to me and I just left. <laughs> uh, and I was so embarrassed. I still feel bad about that. What did
2: you play as a kid then? It sounds like it wasn't too much cricket. What what caught your passion? No, I did play cricket okay. as,
0: as a kid, but I just wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very good at any sport, really. I, I was a boxer. I was rather an aggressive uh, kind of boxer. Um, and... I used to sort of knock people about and got knocked about too. Uh, It's a mistake to be a boxer, really, if you're tall and skinny as I was in those days. Well, I mean, I still am tall, but I'm not skinny. Uh, Because anybody shorter than you can just sort of beat you around the the stomach and diaphragm and uh, mm. you know you're used to sort of bang him on the top of the head so that wasn't uh,
3: You couldn't land a shot on uh, Harold Wilson that time though
0: unfortunately. <laughs> I should have tried it. Um, <laughs> I, don't think I should have actually no, um, that, 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 uh, To so be fair a,
2: that, that would have been reported Yeah I mean, you might have lasted until lunchtime that reported, day
0: and yeah. all the pictures would have been of uh, <laughs> Yes, yes BBC Unprovoked and unprovoked and attack by
2: <laughs> new BBC <laughs> journalists Yeah um,
0: Oh um, and rugby was my well, rugby was the game that i I enjoyed the most and uh and I played it through uh through from my uh, first primary school through to um, secondary school and then uh to university and um i i I loved rugby and i still absolutely love rugby and a few, a couple of years ago, three years ago, I can't remember my old school got in touch and said they were getting together a a team of 65 year olds and, and upwards and didn't I want to play but um, uh, I was quite keen actually but my wife said you're (laughs) insane you'll (laughs) break your hip or something and you'll never work again and uh, so I sent them back a letter saying sorry on on second thoughts I Mm -hmm. don't think I'm going to turn out. What position were you in rugby and what was your playing style? Uh, the, my playing style was was really kind of aggressive, uh, um, rangy and aggressive, and I used to I played all the three back row positions. I, I used to really like being number eight. You know, if you're if you're in the in the front row or the second row, your job is kind of cut out for you. You know, you've just got you know it's a it's a matter of weight really and pushing and and shoving but um, if you're in the back row you know you can do a lot of things you can turn yourself into a sort of phony um, three-quarter and uh, charge around the field I used to love that and uh, sometimes in my you know when I dream at night I'm still (laughs) I'm on the rugby field and running around and then you know and I wake up and the poor creaking old seven four year old uh, you know be lucky to walk across the field let alone run
2: (laughs) Well you can live vicariously through your
0: son now I presume you're (laughs) putting him through his paces Yes but you see um, I am and I have (laughs) and he, he he does play rugby but he's he, he feels, and I, then I'm to blame for this. I, I you know, I used to t- teach him how to tackle and how you really got to get stuck in. I mean, I've taught him all these things, and he was, uh, I think, a bit too obedient about it. And so he's throwing himself down at the feet of oncoming forwards. And um, I've taken him twice to, to you know, get him brain scans and things because he's nice. he's been concussed and. Nice. I don't know the 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 game of rugby today is not is not what it was yeah. I mean it's so much more kind of efficient and sorted out and and planned for you know, and you get these kids of fifteen, sixteen that are already starting to bulk up their muscles and um maybe sometimes taking things that they really probably ought not to take in order to do it, and you just think. Do I want my young son to throw himself at the feet of those kind of of characters? Do I want to be taking him to accident and emergency departments, uh, you know, into his late teens? And the answer's actually not really, not very much. So, okay. uh, you know, I'm, uh, he wants to play and he's very enthusiastic. I'm the one that's kind of holding him back and saying, how about fencing or you
2: know, <laughs> something like that? <laughs> yeah, maybe some a few tough conversations ahead. But listen, John, you've been very good with your time. We do have to talk about all, this, all these sporting achievements that you put together. Before we do so, we will ask you for one highlight from your own sports career, please.
0: Well, I mean the uh, no no highlights for my own no it's not quite true. I mean, I didn't once score a winning try and i've 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 scored winning runs and I've got one winning wicket. but I think my main my the, what I would regard as my only my sole triumph was i I was the head of my house at at my secondary school, and there we were a bunch of absolutely useless no hopers um, brainy but, but you know, <laughs> awful at, at sport. And uh, we went in for a, a rugby competition, just a school, um, inter-school one, um, I mean, in our own school. And all the other uh, houses were much, much, much better than mine. And I just decided I was going to turn this motley group of kind of bespectacled you know kind of uh, um um pretty fairly useless characters into our rugby team and we won the competition, and we irritated everybody else so much because we were always expected to come last at every sport. That, that the uh, the um, the the teachers in charge announced that there wasn't even going to be a team photo for the winning team. So I knew I'd touched a nerve, and I felt really good about that. Oh,
2: beautiful stuff, Murph. I think you might have more than you bargained for there. Let's find out as we rank this sporting life of John Simpson.
0: You don't understand. I could have had. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Or do you have them? People like me. I could have been a contender. There could have been somebody.
3: John, thank you so much for your time and your memories this morning but the time has come for me to rank your all-time sporting highlight as you've just highlighted there and identify the sports star who we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality and by a glorious alchemy mix these two together to come up with a score out of 100 which will place you somewhere on our leaderboard for Ireland's greatest non-sports person sports person of 2019 Uh, just to mark your card Senator George Mitchell is our current leader with 81 points yes we put put George Mitchell through this as well yeah (laughs) So, yes, exactly. So your all-time sporting highlight is a tale of leadership, comradeship and adversity in overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds. Your achievement in moulding a remorseless rugby-winning machine from a ragtag collection of science nerds, poetry scholars and classical studies dorks at St Paul's cannot be underestimated. In fact, it's the sort of leadership that puts one in mind of a man we've discussed quite a bit over the last couple of weeks, Owen Morgan. A leader of such quality, such charisma, that he could even win a World Cup with English, English Cricketers for years ridiculed as the most cowardly and sorry crew of sports people on the planet truly both Old Morgan and yourself are capable of watered wine transformation so armed with all of this information it gives me great pleasure to tell you that you have scored 80 points good enough for second place oh, wow. on our leaderboard John Simpson this has been your sporting life oh, John Simpson
2: thank you so much a round of applause please <laughs> brilliant stuff uh, I'm afraid you got the wrong person really
0: Strong stuff fields all wet with rain The way that young lovers do
2: The way young lovers do from the album Astral Weeks so that's especially for this morning's guest who is a big Van Morrison fan apparently thanks again to the legend that is John Simpson now I think of it, Van Morrison there's a good guess for second captain Saturday. <laughs> Definitely a, a bang of the stocky corner forward about him kicking points up around Sandy Row there back yeah, in the day. Yeah, it, very easy possible, to book. Uh, notoriously easy to book as well. Loves a good chinwag, Mer. Yeah, 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 OK. Get um, on the search for Van Morrison.
3: I, f- I feel like the uh, the guy on his first day on the uh, the building site being asked to go fetch the plastic hammer there. But I,
2: all, <laughs> all good on.
3: I'm, I'll try my best. I
2: say cor- uh, corner back, corner forward.
3: Uh, better man facing the play I'd say Van cornerback for me but I mean yeah. hey Tiger, listen, this, is all, this is all stuff we can discuss with Van when, <laughs> Next week. He, when he inevitably says yes
2: loads of reaction to our chat with John Simpson there love hearing him love hearing John Simpson says Orna Cassidy he's the most amazing man who talks so much sense somebody's not happy though pa- pathetic suggestion that the UK is on the brink of collapse has Ken ever been to the UK recently people in England and Wales voted to take back control of England the media always hate Conservatives Wales voted to take back control of England. So that's it. This they is gone. True. This really is, is a big story. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, they don't always. I mean, I don't The sun had, had Boris Johnson's face literally imposed on his <laughs> yeah. son. So they don't always Do hate Conservatives in the media. No, no, not that's all of probably it. Probably no. true enough, yeah.
2: I have to disagree with you, Ken, and with John Simpson. If Boris Johnson or Trump were to punch a journalist in the stomach, it comes in this text, like Harold Wilson did to John Simpson, it would increase their support. Not a chance in hell they'd, they'd resign either. Which is the point, actually. I mean, didn't Trump say I could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any voters? Maybe he—maybe that's an exaggeration, but I think he could probably punch somebody, a reporter especially, in Fifth Avenue. Uh, and his, his base mightn't be too shocked and offended. Maybe it would depend on the reporter. Mm, that's true enough. Now, this weekend, some good sport going on. All-Ireland semi-finals. Also, the FAI has its AGM in trim today. That should be a quiet one. <laughs> quite enough here steady as she goes with the good ship <laughs> FAI what should we be looking out for here what's well pretty much is
1: steady as she goes in that um, it's continuity <laughs> uh, with, with Donald Conway who is the president probably uh, well I mean he will be the, the president again at the end of today for a, for a new term there's an interesting piece today in the Irish Times by Emmett Malone where he, he's kind of done a big piece on Conway um, and it's it's really focusing on that you know disconnect between Conway the reforming president who's sort of been leading the renewal and regeneration of the FAI and the guy who sat for 14 years on the FAI board Without raising too many, sort of, (laughs) you know, without raising his hand too many times saying, are we sure about this? Certainly publicly, we never heard a huge amount in that regard. Yeah. Uh, So I guess it poses the question, you know, do you really, do you believe people can change? (laughs) Do you believe people can change really suddenly after quite a (laughs) long spell of time being one way, they can suddenly become the other way? Maybe, you know, maybe they can. But uh, There's a couple of other board members who might get re-elected as well. Which raises
2: the possibility, apparently according to Emmett Malone, that that would be a real FU to Shane Ross. But as Emmett writes, who knows how Shane Ross will react given that FIFA and UEFA have dignitaries at, in and around this FAI just to well, ward was, off
1: any government di- interference. Shane Ross scared of FIFA and UEFA? Is he going to take that? <laughs> is he going to take that lie down <laughs> from FIFA and UEFA? Can we get ourselves thrown out of international football? <laughs> this year? Can, All right. yeah. If
3: any would, Gad. She had Ross kept- No, that's unfair. Jim
2: says, "Oh, I'm scared. We're going to get hammered in the Rugby World Cup. South Africa, unreal this morning." Well, obviously we haven't had a chance to watch this, Jim, but apparently South Africa have pulled off an unbelievable result away to New Zealand. They've equalised. South Africa is 16, New Zealand 16, with a try in the last now, minute. Old. We're trying to avoid New Zealand in the World Cup quarterfinals, but if we are successful in that, we play South Africa in yes. the World Cup quarterfinals. So, so we're playing either the f- best None team this or this the second best team in All the world. Right. That's oh, pretty well. much it for today. Thanks very much for listening to the show. If you want some brilliant independent journalism every day, at our second. Captain's World Service just have a look at setincaptains.com we're back here next Saturday morning the show is produced by Mark Horgan and Simon Hick thanks to Killian Down for researching to Sheila Newell on sound Marion Finucane is coming right up thank you Murph thank you Ken Thanks thanks Ken. thanks for all the texts you sent in on John Simpson and I hope you enjoyed it enjoy your weekend